Hello and welcome everyone to another edition of the American Scouser podcast. My name is Gally and I'll be hosting tonight. And with me, as always, from North Carolina is Mr. Bickler. Bickler, how are you doing tonight? What's happening? Too much. Uh, There's some excitement in the room here. To any of our loyal listeners, don't you worry. The host is going to be here in a little bit. He'll just be playing the contributor role tonight, but you will not have to suffer through another hour of just me and Paul for a second week in a row. Our normal Monday will be back shortly. But it wouldn't be a Monday if we didn't ruin somebody's night, normally two of our nights, with our favorite section of trivia. And I got a few different trivia submissions this week. I have to admit, some of them I think take extra degrees. So we're going to start with the easy one because I only have you, Paul. And I want to make sure we can at least get this one out of here. So in You're calling me dumb? Honor, no, 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 not at all. Just Because right, uh, you said it's going to be the easy one because it's just me. Sounded yeah, like you are well, calling me stupid. Well, yeah, I guess I probably was. Which is so, fair. Where we're going to start here is um, in honor of the FA Cup semifinal draw between Liverpool and Manchester City. The two clubs have squared off seven times in the FA Cup prior. How many goals for Liverpool and how many goals for City? Uh, I will go... I'm going to go 12 goals. I'm going to go – now I'll go 13 goals Liverpool, 11 goals City. All right. So we have um, Bickler rolled in with 13 goals Liverpool, 12 go- – or 11 goals City. So he'd be saying that we would be on a plus two. Um, let's go ahead and uh, give our listeners a little bit of time there. Uh, and we'll come back and we'll give the answer a little bit later in the program. And we may actually bring up a different trivia question uh, when Tamuchin comes in because it actually leads to a little bit more of a conversation point. Should we have enough time? So, Paul, neither of us were on the Thursday podcast, um, you know, last week, which was after the Arsenal match and before uh, the quarterfinal draw for the Champions League. So while we're waiting for Tamuchin to join us here tonight, I thought maybe it'd start here real quick. Why don't you give us kind of a, a kind of your quick hit and uh, your Bickler review of the Arsenal match or any takeaways you had from our 2-0 victory, which I felt was, you know, maybe our best, um, our biggest win in a long time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think by any means we were at our best, but I think like champion teams grind out three points when they're not at their best against tough competition, right? I think Arsenal arguably is in the best form of anyone in the league right now outside of City. I mean, I think that was the game we were all worried about. And I think my takeaway, which is interesting, is like the the commentating team here in the States um, for NBC was really talking about how Liverpool was underperforming, Arsenal had them on the ropes, and Arsenal largely was the better side throughout the match. And that's not how I saw it at all. and so, like, after the match, I w- looked, went back and looked at sort of the, the match statistics. And, like, it kind of confirmed what I, what I kind of felt. Like, 
there were very limited chances in that match, I felt like. I mean, there was really only one key chance for each team, and the difference was that we converted on one of our key chances and they didn't. Um, and then the other one was just caused off a turnover off of Bobby, Bobby's work rate. And I think, like, the difference between us and Arsenal was just a difference in class, in my opinion. If you looked at it, the first goal was just a dime by Thiago on a three ball to Jota. And the other one was Bobby's work rate winning the ball back. Salah gets a, a shot block that recycles out the Rabo. Uh, Rabo puts it back in on a low cross, and Bobby just mere inches gets it in just by being in the right spot. Um, so I think it just came down to that slight difference in quality. Um, but if you looked at the statistics, like we dominated every goal expected category. We had, we out, you know, six to one on corners for us. We outshot them seven to three inside the box. The majority of their chances came from range, um, which means that we did a fairly good job, um, like limiting their chances. I thought Trent really struggled versus Martinelli. I thought he was kind of a liability. Uh, in the match, and it didn't have anything to do with his positioning. I just thought he got beat uh, straight up. But that's kind of the the bad you take with with Trent, which I think his good obviously far outweighs that. Um, I think I found Klopp's comment about Trent's def- like defending like a little bit like Klopp has a tendency to just do this right. He backs players, um, and he'll always back players. But I thought like. I thought it was a little – I'm not going to say disingenuous, but I disagreed with with Klopp's comment to the extent that, like, Trent's, like, a great defender. I don't think he is a great defender, but he plays in a system where he doesn't have to be a great defender, right? And I think that's the thing is, like, we don't need Trent to be a great on-ball defender. I don't think he ever will be um, because of his skill set in this – like, he's such a unique player that we've built a system around him. Um, So I thought that was an interesting kind of side story that sort of spun off of that match. Yeah, Jennings is right. Uh, I mean, that's what makes this team special between the front three is their movement. And and that's really – I mean, it, that that did create the space for Thiago there. So, yeah, I mean, great point. Um, yeah, it, it was a great point. And I, I thought that the overall team performance was, was really good as well. And I think that was what I – I mean, we talked Monday night, and I, I told you I was ready to be a Debbie Downer on Monday night and, and call for a draw – just because Arsenal was playing so well, we hadn't played up to some of the better competition we'd had recently. Um, and then City drops points, and I felt like that's like the coaching the coaching carrot that you need at that point to kind of turn the screw. And I felt like we saw that. I feel like you saw an actual concerted effort by the entire squad to stay um, to stay consistent to the plan. You know, to to do the little things they needed to do and win their individual battles, and that the whole kind of team performance would kind of unfold. And I I think we kind of saw that. And you know, I, I'm with you. I didn't understand um, the commentary as much as understanding they wanted to make sure everyone knew, even at one nil, this was still a really good contest, and and Arsenal is still on the way back because I think the Premier League is starting to worry a little bit about their product being so top heavy that it could become Spain or it could become Germany where there's two teams every year and nobody else takes a point off of them. And I think it's why every time Liverpool plays down a little, we hear about it from the commentators. And every time City drops points, they act as if the planet is shifting, right? Like we draw Brentford after being up 3-0 and it's all the deficiencies we had in the second half. They score one goal in two matches against – Southampton 
and it's all about Southampton figured out a blueprint to close down city. It, it just, it's always a different type of spin that they have, but I think it is them protecting the product. So um, we are now joined by Timuchin. There he is. What's hey. up? What's up, big guy? Welcome oh, back. I know you guys miss me. Yeah, we did miss you. We did miss you. We, 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 we've missed you so much. You've decided to come in in a different chair, which is just going to throw me off for the rest of the <laughs> entire podcast. But um, I just quickly was we did our we did a quick trivia question. Um, actually, why we're here, I think we'll, we'll give the answer now. I saw a few of them come through uh, actually in the chat. So the actual answer in the seven FA Cup matches between City and Liverpool is City has actually outscored Liverpool 10 to uh, 6. So believe it or not, it is actually a four-goal differential in the way of City. So it just makes me think that there must have been a couple, like maybe a nil-nil, and then we had a replay or something mixed in a few times in there because it seems very low for seven matches played between two sides like this. But we haven't played them in a cup game, in a cup match other than the Champions League in a long time. So um, this should be an exciting one. We are going to get to that a little later. So we will thank uh, BJ who contributes here. Um, oh, so I misread it. So it's the opposite. It was actually <laughs> ten to six. I apologize. This is what happens when you decide. But BJ is on the call right now. So. We'll bring it up on the screen just to make the host seem like an even bigger fool. This is how you know there's a real producer of this show. They feed me wrong information, so I look like an idiot. Get the stat guy on the line. Just a small detail, Gally. You're fine. <laughs> well, I'll tell you right now, when we see his second trivia question, if we have time for it, you'll understand why American Scouser probably is upping the budget for our stat guy. Uh, because it's pretty impressive what he has put together for us. But... Um, before we get into the Norwich match, um, we got Paul's take on the Arsenal match. I want to quickly touch on um, the big news from Friday morning. Those of you who uh, may live under a rock and haven't seen it yet, the Champions League draw for the quarterfinals have come out. Take your tinfoil hats off. Uh, this is actually how the balls came out and the teams were selected. But we know the draw, and we know what it would take for Liverpool to see through a quarterfinal. Uh, Liverpool will be uh, matched up against Benfica. And the other quarterfinal on our side sees Villarreal and Bayern Munich, uh, which should be a really interesting tie. Um, and then we have a really, really top-heavy, strong half of the bracket. And I won't lie, I am happy that we are not on that side of the bracket. That will see Chelsea uh, go back up against Real Madrid in a um, – a replay of last year's semifinal, as well as Manchester City taking on the thugs from Atletico Madrid. So before we, you know, we got plenty of time here, guys, to really break down the X's and O's uh, of that Benfica-Liverpool tie in the next couple weeks on the various pods we have. But when you were watching the draw or you first saw it, what, what jumped out at you first and foremost, uh, Timuchin, when it came to you know, your opinion on Liverpool's draw and um, any of the other matchups that you saw? I mean, I was slightly shocked because it's probably the best draw that we could have gotten, really, in terms of, like, when you look at those. And 
my major concern with you know the Champions League fixture with you know this crazy April, which I'm sure like we'll talk about, but with all these fixtures, I think it kind of like favors us a little bit having Benfica and they're not that they're like a terrible team or whatever, but first of all, we do well against Portuguese teams and teams that kind of play a bit more open. And more importantly, seeing City match that with Atletico Madrid was something good to see. Because you know they're going to be getting a physical beatdown because we've been there and done that. And that's a great point. And that was where I went to. Um, we'll talk a little bit, I think, about the schedule and maybe how these ties affect um, our boys in the run-in. Paul, um, your initial thoughts, both from a Liverpool perspective and maybe the tie that jumps out at you as either the tastiest or the one you're looking forward to the most? So I was, uh, I, I mean, I completely agree with Timichin. It was definitely the best draw for us that we could have possibly gotten. I was, the only teams I didn't want to see, I'm not afraid of Real Madrid uh, or, or, or any of these big boys. The ones that I didn't want to see, though, were Chelsea in Atletico. Uh, Chelsea, I think, is a, is a matchup nightmare for us. They cause us problems in a way that City doesn't. Um, and... And Atletico is just – they're a dog. They're going to just completely – they're just a, a terribly physical side that I would rather – I mean, at some point you got to go through the best, right? But I just didn't want – with all the fixture congestion, I just didn't want us to, to have to do two legs of Atletico Madrid because they're going to take – they're going to they're gonna take a toll on you over two, two legs for sure. Um, I think the most interesting matchup, if I look at this, is probably uh, Bayern Villarreal. Uh, Villarreal is a really interesting team full of a lot of really cool young players, um, very interesting young players. They can score. Uh, and I think Bayern, like, obviously they're an elite team, but they can they can be had on that back line. They can be scored on. So I think if there's going to be an upset across the board, that's, that's sort of the matchup to keep an eye on. Um, you know, we've seen Bayern down in, in two-legged ties and come back and smoke six in, right, on the second leg. So you never you never know, but I think if there's going to be some some fireworks, that's the one to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, I have to say when, um, when the ball started coming out and they were calling out the names um, and they matched up Manchester City and Atletico Madrid, the first thing that went through my head was, was like, you know, really here we've always said that they just seem to get the rub of the green right manchester city if there's an easy draw it's usually manchester city gets it in this case it was it for me it was the worst draw they could have got even worse than getting liverpool because i think they would get up for those matches they'd figure out the way it's not that much travel and literally we'd be playing them four times and <laughs> in a five-week period and it would probably just feel like it was a best of seven series we won't talk about baseball smooching but and, you know, That's really nice. what we would get to here is, is, is the idea that I saw that one. But for me, the tastiest draw there um, is probably Chelsea-Real Madrid. I think it's a mixture of everything going on at Chelsea right now. Um, I think Madrid, that, that tie hinges on whether or not Benzema will be healthy enough to play. If Benzema can play in that tie, Real Madrid has a chance to win it. Um, and if he doesn't, I think anyone who – you know, wasted any time watching El Clasico yesterday, probably knows that that Real Madrid team cannot operate without Benzema at the top. Uh, so I think that one's going to be interesting. And I think Atletico is really going to push City. I, I think that first leg is very, very important. I think if Atletico goes home with either something to defend 
or uh, something that they can nick and take the extra time. I just think the amount of tactical fouls and actual shithousery that will go down by Atletico over those two legs is going to be something beautiful to watch. And, you know, Klopp gets in Simeone's head when they play. And I just have this feel or in, in Guardiola's head when he plays. And I could see Guardiola doing one of those things he does, you know, just trying to overdo the tactical arrangements and, and really kind of put him in a tough spot. And who knows, maybe City doesn't see themselves through that tie. So if I asked you guys right now, who do you put in the semifinals? Tamuchin, who do you have in your two semifinal brackets? I mean, my head says, not my heart, but my head says it will be Chelsea and City and us and Bayern. Paul, you got the same? Oh, man. You know what? Like, I, I think Atletico Madrid can beat – I think Atletico Madrid will get it done. I really do. I think that's the worst possible matchup for City. I yeah. think they're, they're a team that can just dog City in the midfield. And I think I think you're right about Pep. I think he tends to over-tinker at times, and I think he could do a situation where he fields the, the wrong midfield in response. And if, if Atletico have anything to defend, they're just going to sit back and make it absolutely miserable for City. I, I think Atletico could – I'm going to go with Atletico on this one. I think Atletico-Chelsea, and that's going to be another just bruising matchup as well. Whoever makes it to the final is going to be half dead already, so that's good. Um, but, yeah, and then I, I think, yeah, as much as I love the Villarreal team and that story, um, they got a midfielder we've been tracking for a while anyway, which will be interesting to see. Um, and then uh, I could see – well, I think Bayern will probably get that thing done, and then it will be awesome, Bayern. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if I was betting with my, you know, betting with my wallet, I would bet City, Chelsea, Bayern, Liverpool. I do think one of those ties, either Bayern, Villarreal, or Atletico, um, I do think will will there'll be an upset in one of those two. The Villarreal has a really good chance. You know, you could argue that there isn't a better knockout manager in all of world football than Unai Emery with what he's done at Sevilla, PSG. I mean, he's literally won the Europa League four or five times. He won it again last year with Villarreal. They were kind of laughed at in their group with, with Juve and, and United, and people said they had no chance to get out of it. They did. Um, so, you know, I, I've been impressed with them. I do think Bayern will do just enough. Uh, and I think it actually is, is a decent matchup for us. I think we would be favored against the, against Bayern over two legs, to Paul's point. Their defensive frailties, um, Klopp teams have always performed well in Germany. So I think we might be on course to see Liverpool and Chelsea in the Champions League final. We'll talk later. We might be on course to see Liverpool and Chelsea play in the FA Cup final. And hell, we already played them in the League Cup final. And to Paul's point, I think it'll be a logistical nightmare and make winning the quadruple even more difficult, honestly, because I could see every one of those games being just like the League Cup and being a KG affair that is a VAR call or a nil-nil draw to penalties. Um, I'll take our, you know, our guys and our winners and our manager, but I just, I wouldn't mind seeing a little variety and, you know, maybe playing Real Madrid or Atletico Madrid in the Champions League final and not one of the English teams. But to not get too far ahead of ourselves, but it is exciting 
to finally be able to talk about ties that uh, don't include lower level competition or folks. Oh, wait, lower level competition in cup ties. That's where we go next. So Sunday, we had um, a very, very difficult match, in my opinion, with Nottingham Forest. They showed up to play. You could tell it was a big, big match for them. They didn't come. You know, they came with an intention of playing football, which I loved uh, for a low-level side. I think they gave their crowd and their supporters a wonderful performance. And honestly, we're lucky that they didn't get a couple goals throughout the match um, with the opportunities that they had. So let's start where we always start, with the lineup in a cup, game, cup match. Paul, lineup comes out. You hit Discord with? Uh... God, Gomez at right back again. Um, yeah, so I wanted to see Connor Bradley here. I thought Bradley made sense. I think he's a natural fullback. He's played very well when he's been out there. I thought um, – I understood wanting Gomez to get minutes. I thought this was the opportunity to put Gomez in the center and get Van Dyke a rest. Although, true to Klopp's philosophy, what he does when he starts the B team is he puts one member of the A team right up the middle. So that's Van Dyke, Fabinho – and Jota, right? So, like, this is really on brand with how he runs this when he does this. Um, I just uh, – that being said, I know, like, the evaluations on players were all over the map. If you go online, every single site has a different man of the match for this game. Like, people who said there was the worst performance they've ever seen out of Costas – he got man of the match on some things. A lot of people said Gomez was terrible. He got man of the match on some things. Allison was terrible with the ball on his feet. He got man of the match in some places. Like, it was just literally all over the place. It's one of those matches that was so disjointed. Nobody's really going to agree on anything other than the fact that Ox was total shite. Um, but, like, it was just – it was like – it was one of those things where it was absolutely all over the place. Um Credit to Nottingham Forest. They are a tough team in great form in the championship right now since their manager change. Um, yeah, we it was one of those ones where we probably didn't deserve to go through. We didn't deserve much out of that match. But, I'm, I mean, this is where we go back to, like, championship teams get results when they're not at their best, right? We were far from it, but we squeaked it out. Yeah, and Timuchin. Uh, where, what were your thoughts, you know, pick up where Paul left off there, you know, basically the lineup, either your thoughts on where it started, you know, the inconsistency of maybe the ratings and the reviews. And I will second the fact that uh, I was waiting for Paul to finish just so I could jump in and say, I hope there was nowhere where Ox was man of the match. Because in the 60th minute, the only person who thought Ox put in a good performance was Ox, clearly, because he couldn't believe that his number went up on the board. <laughs> and he looked so disgusted disgusted and disheveled so if he got any man of the match votes i would think they probably came um from either poppy or his mom one or the other yeah maybe he's listening to us a lot where people keep saying like he needs a runoff games you know he's like don't you guys see the comments i need the runoff games but I, I don't know i thought it was the, the back line was kind of expected i did not understand the top i didn't i Definitely expect to see Taki out there. I thought, you know, Bickler would get his wish and we would see Divac out there. So I was kind of shocked to see that front line because, you know, Jota and Bobby together did not make sense to me. And obviously it did not work well. Um, 
I thought, you know, like Bickler says, I can see, you know, Fab kind of like organizing that midfield. And then you have Bobby there who kind of got some minutes, but less minutes than Jota. So I kind of thought he would be the one in the middle and then maybe like Divac or whatever with him. I just was shocked with that top three. And, you know, this is probably my jinx because I predicted like a 4-1 victory, which you guys know I never freaking do on Thursday's podcast. And it kind of backfired. I think my main concern going into any of these games is when we do a very heavy rotation, there is a lot of disconnect and it shows. And we did, what, seven, I think, like different players from, you know, the Arsenal game. And it kind of showed everything was disconnected. And I almost feel like this team, when they go out, and I know, you know, we always talk about like mentality monsters and stuff like that. But I felt like we went out there expecting an easier game, regardless of what Klopp says. The body language, how much more physical they were. And I'll admit, when we were talking on Thursday's podcast, we thought, you know, Forrest would not be able to keep up that pace, even if they keep with us the first half you know with our movements and running and press we thought you know they would start kind of like falling apart in the second half and that did not happen they made good substitutions to be able to keep going the way they were playing but yeah i mean it was i mean like bickler says it was hard to when i saw costas as player of the match in a couple of places i was like really because i really thought that was probably the worst we've seen him in terms of especially like end product and stuff like that and defensively. Uh, but then I was thinking who would be man of the match? And yeah, it's like, it was tough. Game, to pick. It was the game winning assist. I don't know. You know? I mean, I guess yeah. that's, you know, that's probably what people are looking at and he did push up a lot. I mean, he took a couple of shots, right? And we always give crap. I know in the discord channel, we talk about how oh, Robo oh, never oh, takes oh. a shot. He always passes the ball. But here's the thing. A couple of those shots, one of them was like a good shot and it was called for. It was just begging to be hit. But the second one, Robo never shoots that. He probably crosses that because we had four or five people in the box. So I know, I think some people see that and say, oh, there we go. You know, like he's taking shots, he's pushing up. It's good to see. Uh, yes and no. I mean, depends on the place. And the, like one of those shots was called for. The other one really was not because we had numbers up top and it was begging for a cross to the back post, which probably Robo would have done. And he did not. I mean, I thought overall for what we're used to seeing from him, he did not do that well. But at the same time, he did not really have a true winger playing with him on the left. So I don't know. That was part of it as well. Yeah, I I, I got a little frustrated with him early in the match. Um, I also think that, yeah, his his – his interchange with Jota was not the same as when he's had Mane or even in the short times we've seen him with Diaz. And I just feel like, um, I know to Paul's point, we've talked about it and I agree. Jota has played on the left, you know, a lot of times he played on the left at Wolves, but that was really when Nuno was playing more of like a three, five, two kind of a setup with them. And he was playing with, you know, off of almost like the off striker. He did play wide at times last year, I personally really like him through the middle. I just don't think he does enough with the type of style of play we have. And he just constantly comes inside, which I think confuses his midfield partner on that side. And maybe that had something to do with why Samikas didn't look as fluent in his movements up at the top end of the pitch. So once Jota did move and we went to the two striker system, it got a little bit better. I thought what I what frustrated me before we talk about two of the enigmas in the lineup, 
the frustration I had was I thought this was a Harvey Elliott match. I made the comment, this feels like it should be a Harvey start. Then he gets the start and he's in the front three. After all year, when we've even been asking for him to get run in the front three, we've been being told he is now a midfielder. He is part of our midfield ranks. And yet when we had a chance to give Divock some minutes, to give Taki a start from the beginning, we instead bring the kid in. And it, it just felt like a very, I don't know if the idea was him and Ox could be fluent and just kind of switch back and forth between the midfield and the wing position. Uh, but I just felt like, you know, Elliot did very little with the time that he had on the pitch. And he has these great, great moments of brilliance. But I feel like it's now getting to the point, like it probably does for most 18-year-olds, where the actual moments of brilliance in between the long stretches of little, um, little return is starting to come through. And I think it shows why he probably isn't ready for the role that some Liverpool supporters want him to have, like penciled in as a starter or starting in big matches. And I, I think we're going to see a lot less of him as the season and the campaign goes forward. I don't think there's a big role for him the remainder of the way. And I think we kind of saw that here in this match. But let's, let's shift over. Let's touch on Gomez because I think we're going to be seeing him a little bit more. Uh, Tamuchin, let's start with you. We know Paul doesn't love him just uh, positionally. He just doesn't believe his skill sets, you know, bode well as a right back. And I, I tend to agree with him on that. Um, what are your feelings on Gomez being the one to deputize for Trent while he is out with his hamstring? I mean, Paul not liking is a low bar, first of all. That's kind of like a tough to... <laughs> but yeah, it is the water is I wet. Thought... Actually, I thought Gomez played pretty well, especially in the first half. The difference between him and, you know, he made those runs. His end product was never there, like the crosses. Like, you know, we were like, oh, it goes Gomez again. And then it was like, oh, shit cross, you know. And, I mean, it's kind of not fair to probably expect him to do the same delivery as Trent. And that's probably partially the problem with this right back position is, you know, the bar is set very high in terms of what we're expecting out of there in terms of delivery and stuff like that. So I thought aside from that, he did well. One thing I do agree with Paul is probably not suited best for that. I would rather personally see him as center back too. And because I think it's more natural and he can kind of use his speed and positioning a lot better. But I would rather pick... Gomez, I think, for example, over Milner, which, you know, in a more serious game or more like a more important game where we wouldn't probably try, you know, like Bradley or somebody like that and try them out there, those without Trent, which I don't know how serious this hamstring injury is. It was more to, I think, like keep him hanging by the, with us. But, you know, if, if we need to rotate that spot, I think I feel a lot more comfortable with Gomez, mainly due to his speed. One thing that he doesn't have that Milner has, I think, is knowing your capabilities, where Milner knows he doesn't have the speed, so he takes his positioning accordingly when he's playing defense, especially. And he's not going to probably push up as much. But I, I thought he did well overall. There were a couple of points where I think like in Discord channel people were like Gomez what the hell like weird pass or whatever but I thought he did pretty well overall 
I don't know. I would have made him mad at the match like some places did, but I thought he did well. Well, I think all you needed to do to be man of the match in this one was show up. Uh, that, <laughs> if if Costas got votes, you show up and get through the whole 90 minutes and therefore, <laughs> you know, you qualify as at least a candidate for man of the match. I think Jurgen should get man of the match for using all five subs. Um, Paul, what about you with Gomez? Um, maybe a positive takeaway and anything you saw that you still have concerns about leading forward uh, while he's out there at this time. I mean, the positive of the Gomez is the top end pace is back, right? So, like, I mean, that was the major concern, especially being the slowest one to recover out of all the, like, you know, season-ending injuries we had last year between the three. Um, I think he was the, the, the slowest to come back and the biggest concern. Um, he's also had the most severe injury history on that body. So to see the top end pace, that's obviously promising. Um yeah, I just think like I, I for me it's just like a body build. Like he's such a he's such a big lean dude that like he has that top end pace, but he doesn't have any of the quick twitch stuff, which I think you need as a fullback. So for me, I think he struggles with some of the quick directional change stuff, um, and I think he struggles positionally at, at the right back. I think he just he has always kind of struggled whenever he's been out there. Um, I thought it was an interesting match because I think it was a it to me it looked like a case of like Klopp prioritizing player minutes and not necessarily caring where they were, right? Like he obviously is either shopping Ox or wanting to get him more minutes for some internal reason we don't know. And the only place to put him was a position that put multiple players out of position. Harvey going up top, like Gomez pushing out wide. Like I just think for me it was very interesting, like the fact that I don't think he was necessarily concerned about the best player for the best position, but like more which players he wanted to get out there and get minutes, period. Were you guys that, shocked you know, though, that we did not see Taki starting? I, I mean, absolutely I that shocked. Talking. Absolutely shocked. It makes me think that we already have a buyer, to be quite honest. Yeah, hmm. I, I, you know, I, I think I've said a few times, I, I expect Taki to go um, to Leeds. I, I expect Leeds to stay up, you know. Good for American Jesse Marsh and his, you know, two wins and a draw. And, you know, it looks like they're, you know, punching right about there and they can get a couple more results. I think they'll be safe. I, I think that was already done. I think it was almost done in January, but uh, maybe we didn't have the Diaz thing done yet and they just wanted to hold out or thought maybe the fee would go up in the summertime. Um, but I, I think he's probably going to go to Leeds fill that role. I think they'll lose Rafinha and probably another player or two as well. And, you know, he comes from Salzburg. That's that style that Marsh played. Marsh coached him as a youth player there. So I, he sense. understands the player. It makes sense. And um, yeah. I could see him wanting more players like that. So if that's the case, you know, let's touch quickly. And we're going to start with you, Timuchin, because it's your favorite. Your lad, Nabby. Um, I thought it was a polarizing performance because we went once again in the, you know, to the Costas points. I felt like this was a match where you could have ragged on eight to ten of the starting eleven, and for whatever reason, between our Facebook group and Discord, Nabby took a ton of the brunt, and I thought he was, I thought he was meth average, just like Fabinho was meth average at times in the first half, and. Ox was below average, but um, Nabby had a few big plays. He had a couple bad, bad turnovers again in tough spots. But what are you seeing recently with Nabby? 
you know, there's talks about a contract right now for him that they're working on at the club that could see him add two more years to his existing deal. That might be to increase fee, or it could be because Jurgen thinks he's figuring it out. You know, where are you with Naby right now? Because it feels to me like he's our fourth midfielder and the first guy to start when it's not Thiago, Fab, and Hendo from the start. I think Naby is at his best when he just plays within himself and just fills whatever, you know, the role that we need him to fill, which is another person who's going to be good at counter-pressing in midfield and, you know, play it simple, move the ball around and stuff like that. When you come in, so the last, you know, what, like three, four appearances he had, you know, I was actually praising and now getting crap for praising him, but that's that's my life story. But, you know, like normally I give him crap, but, you know, I thought he was doing a lot better because he was playing within himself, within the team. When he enters a game like this, I think he looks at that midfield and says, I got to be the one to create. So sometimes when he kind of like tries to do that and forces things, that's when he gets those turnovers. People always like bitched about like Genie until we didn't re-sign him, then he was the best player ever. But people always complain about like Genie and stuff because, you know, he didn't do anything creative. You know, he might have appealed a lot more simple, you know, play the simple pass instead of trying to force the through balls and stuff like that. I think if when Keita goes out there and plays like that within like, you know, if he goes out there with the regular top of the line starting 11 and he's the third midfielder, let's say replacing an injured Thiago or something like that. I think he plays within himself, plays a lot better. He's a lot more efficient when he goes into a game like this, where there's a lot of backups, he almost feels like, I mean, I get the sense that at least he almost feels like he has to do more. Some of the creative work has to come through him. And that's when he starts forcing stuff. He tries to take people on when he shouldn't be taking people on. He turns the ball over. And obviously that stuff sticks out like a more of a sore thumb because he's the one that caused the counter. So mm. everybody kind of like hammers him a lot more. I think that's like the issue there. I think down the road, if we kind of work on the player I talked about before, he will be valuable. He's probably one of the best counter-pressing ones on, in that midfield. But when we try to use him as the creative mind or controlling the game space like we do with Thiago, he is not basically Thiago, and he should not be expected to do Thiago's work. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, I think that's a really great way to put it. Actually, is is that when you see him play, and Hender, it's him, Henderson, and Fabinho, he understands that. Hendo will alter his role a little bit to pick up some of the pieces that they, that is, you know, is there when Thiago's on the pitch and Keita can just be Keita. And when he plays with Fabinho and Thiago is where I think he's at his actual best. I think Naby Keita plays best when he's playing in the Hendo role and he's playing with Thiago as a creative force from the midfield. And he has the cover of Fab behind him. Um, I just feel like he's at that point now where I do believe there's no more excuses. There's no more bad run of matches or betting in. I think he understands it. He understands his role within the team. And he just needs to push on from these performances. And, and hopefully, you know, months like the last month will help build on that forum. Another guy I was happy to hear today has been removed from international duty uh, due to an injury. I will say to the... Trent comment that we had earlier um, they are now talking and they're slowing people down 
Everyone was saying, oh, he's shooting to be back for the city match. Today's official comment was, it's not as bad as we thought. We are hopeful he will play a part in some of the April fixtures. That doesn't make me overly confident that he'll be ready for April 9th. Um, and I just have a feeling that we're going to see Gomez play. Uh, I think we're going to see Gomez play against Watford and Gomez play against City. And we'll probably see Milner line up against Benfica in the two legs in the Champions League. Well, I hope not, because then Bickler's nightmares will come to life. Because uh, I think I understand the Watford one, but against City, where you know you're playing against a good team with top players who understand the movements and stuff like that, creating space, Gomez can be played with. I think that's where you know when I was talking earlier about Milner knowing his capabilities and responsibility, he will be a lot easier to play there, even though he does not have the speed, he will not get moved out of position as easily as I think Gomez would. I, I want to go back to Navi really quickly because I want to open up yeah. the phone lines here. And somebody answer this question for me because, like, if I had one question for Jurgen Klopp, it would be how he decides to start the midfield. Like, what is the determining factor here? Because, like, let's look at our midfielders, right? Diago, in my opinion, is, his best performances are on the right. Hendo's best performances are on the right. Ox's best performances are on the right. Kata's are on the left. Milner's are on the left. If you look at this match, Ox, who's had his best performances on the right, is on the left. Kata, who's had his best performances on the left, is on the right. Like, if I had one question for Jurgen, it'd be like, how? Like, are you going off who's playing up top? Are you going off the back line? Like, what is the determining factor? Because this happens in matches throughout the entire year. All of a sudden, you'll see Hendo on the left side of the midfield and Milner on the right. Like, it's it's just like a lot of times it's just like I like I just look at this and I'm like, I don't I don't I don't get it. Like in like that's not surprising. There's a lot of things I don't get for obvious reasons. But like it is it is when you look at the when you look at the run of play and you look at the historical evidence of how these players performs, that stuff certainly doesn't help a guy like Nabi or Ox both of who struggle to like find their place in the team um, and to get their sort of movement and spatial awareness and their sort of flow and their feet under them, so to speak. I don't think that stuff helps. And I just, please, somebody come pipe in at some point, fill me in. I, I don't get it. I'll have John. Yeah, Kitchen ask That does surprise me as well. Um, Mewton, the one thing I would say to your call for Milner at right, at right back is Milner's made one big start against the top side this year, and it was against City, and it was Milner, it was miserable. And if Phil Foden was living or breathing that afternoon, we wouldn't have drawn that match. We would have lost by four goals because he literally ran circles around him. And, and I'd be more afraid that Pep would just load up and literally run at Milner. He'll have a yellow card within 10 or 15 minutes. And we might really, really be in trouble. I, I think there has to be a real conscious effort around tactically defending in that city match, or we're going to have trouble down their left flank. The best thing with Milner at right back for city is I bet you there's less than like 25 city supporters that actually remember he used to be a fullback for them. <laughs> That's a great point. So um, as we talk about transitioning over, let's talk about the big transition. It was about the 60, 65 minute mark in the in the fourth match. It was still nil nil. And we all started clamoring for a sub. 
or two. And then we saw a third. And then Hendo wasn't even in the screen anymore. And then he was back in the screen. And I realized Jurgen was sending out a four pack, um, you know, to basically go win that match. And so, you know, in comes, what was it? Diaz, Taki, uh, Hendo, and Tiago. He takes out the entire midfield and, um, and Elliot. Were you surprised at that substitution at that time that he left the four attackers on? And more importantly, were you surprised that he actually altered the formation to play with two strikers up top? We'll start with you, Tamuchin. I honestly thought, you know, we know what he does, right? Like you knew those subs are not going to come in at halftime. He was going to like trot him out there and say, hey, you guys know better, you know, do your thing. And that was partially, I mean, it goes back to kind of like Bickler's question. The phone lines are still open and we're waiting for an answer. But it's the stubbornness of, you know, like in the Arsenal game, you could almost tell it was kind of like an even game, right? And you can see some things working, some things not working. So I can kind of see at halftime, you know, we even talked to some about 30s podcast. Instead of screaming at everybody, he never screams. It's kind of like showing the spaces. This is how we can create stuff and, you know, send everybody back out there. In this game, it just the original formula was wrong. I don't know what adjustments. I could not see any adjustments made between the you know the end of the first half and up to the 60th minute. Whereas you could see it in the Arsenal game, like in terms of the mm-hmm. movement up top and stuff like that. So it was kind of like beating a dead horse. So I mean, even he could only stand it for so long, and then we kind of did like a you know, use their free hits. Now that I'm using this, uh, learning this fantasy game, uh, he did like a free hit <laughs> and changed like the whole thing. And, you know, at the same time, and, you know, I think you almost had to do so many substitutions to be able to kind of change the formation overall, because there were so many people playing out of spots to start with, like Elliot and kind of like Jota in a way too. Paul, we get the subs on. Um, did you did you feel like the goal was coming? Did you think this thing might be going to extra time at nil-nil? Or they might even pip one on us? Because God knows they had a couple chances. Yeah, I thought the goal was coming. I thought the forest goal was coming. And it almost did. If that <laughs> yeah. like, dude with 30 letters on the back of his jersey that starts with a Z didn't side-foot it into the stands from four feet out. Um, yeah, we got super fortunate. The subs didn't surprise me. I mean, usually, generally, the substitution pattern is like the fact that we sub out our midfield and go from there. That's essentially what Klopp generally does. Um, I thought that, like, you know, we talk about Hendo kind of being the metronome in that midfield in in really sort of setting the tempo. But, like, I thought Thiago came in and just basically started painting like he normally does. He just kind of just strokes the ball wherever he wants to and, and really changes the face of that game. And I thought that was the case. I thought he immediately came in and just basically started directing traffic uh, in a way that only he does. Um, but yeah, to, to, to answer your original question, I, I didn't see, I, I mean, I didn't really see where the goal was coming from. I figured we'd probably scrap one in like we did. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like, I don't think, Aside from Thiago, I didn't think that any of those substitutions came in and necessarily raised the level of that game, right? Like, which was which was kind of terrifying at the time. Um, I think we did what good teams did do is we found a way. We dug deep and we we just took an opportunity. 
Like we had an opportunity. We took it. I think if they would have taken their opportunities, we're sitting at home. We're not in that tournament anymore. Yeah. And that was the difference. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I was I thought that uh the play was I thought Diaz, you know, and everybody's human and deserves to be, you know, and play as such. I thought Diaz to me looked really pedestrian, even a little slow at times for him, which is crazy. Um he had the one, you know, nice electrifying run down the side where he tried to take the baseline or the end line again. Um Taki for me. He looked, you know, the best thing about Taki these days is he looks like he feels like he can physically compete. He goes in on tackles. He, he's playing harder than he was. I think he's kind of knocked that little timidness off. He can still be brushed off the ball because physically he's not as big uh, or as strong as, say, a Mo or someone like that. I thought he had a couple nice pieces of movement um, and had a little nice interchange with Firmino. I, I would love to see Taki and Firmino play a 90 minutes together and actually, you know, get a little bit of cohesion down because I feel like they would play well off of each other, their skill sets and their movements. But in, in, in the whole, I'm with you. I think Thiago was really the only sub that really made an impact. And let's be honest, it was a moment of brilliance. It was a great cross and a really deft touch that found the back of the net. And for me, that's what Jota does. Jota was arguably the worst player on the pitch outside of Ox for every single minute he was on the pitch. And, but when there's a moment to score a goal, he pops up and he scores a goal and he, it was a great touch. Um, I still don't know how he was onside because I saw it 50 times and thought he was offside. I understand it's the angles, but even in the angle they showed us with the lines, I thought his foot was beyond the arm of the defender and therefore that goal was going to get chalked off. Um, but let's not go into VAR because we'll just go into the penalty call, penalty shout, dragging leg, which I think we were lucky to avoid a penalty in that. And if that's a Liverpool player, I think we're all screaming it's a penalty and he should have went down easier and blah, 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 but he drags the foot. Uh, someone will still have to explain to me if it's not a penalty and the offensive player created the contact and goes down and rolls over and puts their arms up like this, how they're not booked for simulation, but that's a question for another pod. I was about to answer, you, but then you pumped. You can answer, I, answer, answer it quickly. I think the commentator kind of like mentioned it. I, that, I think that's the closest to a decent explanation in terms of when it is yellow and when it's not. And like when it's considered deceiving and one of them was that contact. You know, since he made contact, there was contact. I mean, even if he initiates it, because there's the thing. I mean, it's kind of hard to, when you're running full speed, sometimes something that looks like a small contact can make you fly off. We've all been there. I know I've been there because I'm a little dude. Uh, but, you know, in that scenario, a smarter player who maybe didn't have the good intentions that the player had there probably earns the penalty. Because he does not even lift a foot. He just leaves on the ground knowing Allison is already down there and he just like falls over. He almost was trying to get past it, almost caught himself midway in the air. Shit, I'm not going to get there. The ball is going really wide and then dragged the foot. So he almost like landed it on top of Allison instead of not lifting it at all, taking the contact and going down. But I think, you know, and, when they were and, talking about it, like Chris Scott said, you know, if there is contact, yeah. I think they assume it's not simulation or you can't at least prove that it's simulation. 
And I, I understand that part of it. And I also get where David Jennings is coming with, you know, hey, Gally, there is such a thing as a no call. I do get that. I also know that the TGMOL uh, came out and made a comment afterwards actually stating that the announcing wasn't correct because there can be simulation even with contact. If the player is deemed to be trying to deceitfully uh, – outweigh the a match official. Basically, if you're trying to play off that there was contact and by dragging your leg, you can be called for that. But it's a lot of proof. Stand- Which is absolutely ridiculous because in the very fundamental stages of amateur football, you are basically Correct. told to embellish <laughs> like you, the entire <laughs> the entire idea of being a striker in the box is you're if you're not gonna score, you're gonna try to win a way to score, right? Like at the exactly. very at the very low levels. Which was why, which was why my sentiment was: if this were a Liverpool player, we know where where the allegiance would have been. And sometimes it is the laundry that determines, you know, the colored glasses in which that you view the the infraction. My whole point is: is they have to discuss these things with this, and they have to address them at some level because it gets worse and worse. But I honestly, again, I thought they were going to call that a penalty originally. Then when they slowed it down over and over, I still think if that is a Premier League team playing at home in a big spot, VAR awards that as a penalty. City gets that as a penalty if that's Raheem Sterling. And and that's not a uh, – we might get that as a penalty if it's Salah. But Forrest doesn't get that in that spot, unfortunately. And that's still – you know, that probably right there about officiating is probably a a conversation for another podcast. But – we win the match, we survive, we press on. And we had already known before uh, the match started that this would be bringing us to a matchup with Manchester City uh, in the semifinal of the FA Cup. There is question right now on travel bans in England and therefore uh, stating that this match may not go ahead in London at Wembley and maybe. Um, played somewhere else. I can't imagine there's anywhere up north that they could play this match and make it fair. So I think it will go through at Wembley eventually, uh, but we will see. What were your thoughts, gentlemen? We'll start with you, Timujin, because, well, we're not going to refer to Paul as a gentleman on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I kind of assumed it was me, yeah. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts? What were your thoughts when, that, when the draw first came out? Are you excited to play City? And, and get them in the semifinal, maybe before the final. What were your thoughts? I don't know. Call me cheap or the easy routes. Or, I mean, I know everybody is like, you got to beat the best to be the best to win and everything and stuff. But, hey, I know what you want to call it, but I want the easiest route to that final. I'll worry about who makes it to the final at the end and beat them. So I would rather have seen Crystal Palace. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. It's not like, you know, it's not like I would be any happier if it was Chelsea instead of City, for example. Out of the three that were there, I was like, I hope we get Crystal Palace. Uh, so otherwise, I think Chelsea and City. I mean, if they ask Pep right now, if they could kind of like pull this off, uh, I think, you know, Pep would say, hey, man, leave us Champions League. You can have the FA Cup. Take the league. Just give me the Champions League. And maybe like Liverpool and City can work out something like that. You know, it won't be quad. But you'll have your triple, and then I'll have my finally like Champions League trophy kind of deal. But yeah, I mean, 
Crystal Palace will be easier, but I don't think there's a huge difference between City and Chelsea in terms of like the battle we would face. Because I think Chelsea brings their own challenges, and we saw that in the League Cup final. But it is what it is. I like I say, I would rather have Palace, but what are you gonna do? Paul, what are your thoughts on the two semifinals and specifically, you know, who, who would you have actually rather faced if you had to between Chelsea I, and City? I, I think we all would have taken power. Yeah, if I had to pick between Chelsea and City, it'd be City. And I'll tell you why. I think, I mean, I, I think Chelsea is the more physical team. I, I don't think they're super happy about having lost the final to us already this year. So I, thought they, I think they probably would have brought the heat a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. The way that I look at City is this. Like, worst-case scenario, we lose this match. It's an audition for the remaining times we're going to see them this year, okay? So, like, the way that I see that is almost like this – we can adjust tactically with what they're doing against us, and we know it's, what's coming. Um, I also think that if we beat City, it's going to be a little bit of a psychological blow for them moving forward, uh, knowing that they got to play us again. Um, so, I guess I look at it both ways. If we lose, we know what we can do. We can adjust to it. If we beat them, like, this is kind of psychological warfare at this point, and we know Pep doesn't love that. Um, so I think that's why I would pick City over Chelsea. And do you both expect uh, Chelsea to get the better of Crystal Palace, or are either of you calling for the amazing small mid-table club upset and FA Cup run to the finals and Crystal Palace getting their day to sing at Wembley? I think Palace is in a good spot where they could just focus on those games if they wanted to. Like, they're in a safe spot in the league. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that Chelsea isn't, but it would be odd. You know, I would not see Chelsea rotating as much as, for example, Crystal Palace rotating before these finals. I mean, the semifinal games. So, it's possible. I don't see it happening because uh, you would think this is Chelsea's. I mean, obviously, there's the Champions League. But aside from that, this is their only shot at the trophy. So they're going to go at it big time as well. But, um, I mean, I would not be shocked. I think Crystal Palace has done well. They have some guys who can kind of give you trouble. It's just a matter of, you know, which day you catch them on. The fact that it's two games obviously gives the edge. If it was like a single game, I would probably say a better shot at it. It is a single game. Wait, is it this a single game? Am I thinking? I'm thinking confusing. Uh, FA, with FA Cup is a single it's game. April schedule is jacking me up. Well, it's a single game, and you never know. Because uh, I can say, I feel like Crystal Palace has, you know, if Zaha passes the ball or if he's on his day, uh, you know, they have some weapons that can kind of come at you and give you trouble. Uh, pretty physical in midfield. But like I say, going back to what I was saying with Chelsea, I think this is their shot at another trophy, and they will go all for it. Um. Yeah, Paul. Other final. Uh, I think Palace is in a decent spot here. Like, look, Chelsea's ripped off 13 straight wins. If you don't count losing the final to us, so I mean, that being said, I don't think Chelsea's necessarily lighting the world on fire, and they don't look phenomenal at doing so. If you to the flip side of Palace, Palace has lost one game in 10 matches, which is unreal form for them. And the one game they did lose was Chelsea by a goal in the 89th minute. So, I mean, right. they're, they're sitting right there. This thing could go right down to the wire, and, and you know, anything can happen. I, I think Palace has got a puncher's chance. Um, so it should be really interesting to see what happens on that one. Michael Martin adds in for anyone, uh, you know, listening in on our podcast only. Michael Martin adds in, 
Look what Palace did to Everton. They can clearly beat anyone. And, you know, to the point earlier that we talked about, they said, you know, can they reschedule and move the match? Um, you know, the only option at this point would be Sunday, probably at Old Trafford. And it has been talked about, but I just can't see how you can call a match a neutral and equal thing if it's being played within yeah. the, the city in which their supporters reside. Granted, there are probably more Liverpool supporters in the city of Manchester than there are Manchester City supporters. But, um, you know, I, I, I think they'll figure out a way to play that match um, or they may have to travel even further and just travel to a different area that of the of the of the country that allows it. So we will see. We'll probably get some news on that next week to everybody who is uh Listening tonight on the podcast, watching on uh, YouTube, on Facebook Live, on our on our pages, or seeing this through Instagram, following us. Thank you. Um, please like, share, comment. If you haven't joined our Discord community, I don't know what you're missing. Um, you don't know what you're missing, and I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, send us a message on Facebook. We'll send you over the link, or you can look at any of our match day. Um, notifications. We've been trying to put the link to the Discord channel right in the comments section. So if you want to join, if you're watching the match alone, um, jump in and uh, get involved in the community. Um, for myself, Tamuchin and Vickler, thank you guys for listening as always. Have a great couple days. We will be back on Thursday for another weekly podcast and we will get through this international break together. Thanks everyone. Have a great week. Take care.